All right, welcome back to Healthspan. This is part one of Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. Dr. Walker is a professor of neuroscience and psychology at UC Berkeley and the director of the Center for Human Sleep Science. In part one, I'll be going over what sleep is, what sleep isn't, all the health benefits of sleep, what happens if we don't get enough sleep, caffeine, melatonin, sleep pressure, the sleep cycle, defining and generating sleep, and I'll be finishing off with NREM and REM. So Dr. Matthew Walker begins this book by explaining the fact that two-thirds of adults throughout all developed nations fail to obtain the recommended eight hours of nightly sleep. And this, of course, is according to the World Health Organization and the National Sleep Foundation. Dr. Matthew Walker states that, I doubt you are surprised by this fact, but you may be surprised by the consequences. Routinely sleeping less than six or seven hours a night demolishes your immune system, more than doubling your risk of cancer. Insufficient sleep is a key lifestyle factor determining whether or not you will develop Alzheimer's disease. Inadequate sleep, even in moderate reductions for just one week, disrupts blood sugar levels so profoundly that you would be classified as pre-diabetic. Short sleeping increases the likelihood of your coronary arteries to become blocked and brittle, setting you on a path towards cardiovascular disease, stroke, and congestive heart failure. Sleep disruption further contributes to all major psychiatric conditions, including depression, anxiety, and suicidality. So that is the first paragraph in this book, and he wants to lay the foundation and show you how sleep is important for all aspects of your health. Add the above health consequences up and prove and a proven link between uh, you know, sleep and your life is very easily accepted. The shorter you sleep, the shorter your lifespan. The old maxim, I'll sleep when I'm dead, is therefore unfortunate. Uh, adopt this mindset and you'll, you will be dead sooner and the quality of that shorter life will be worse. So society's apathy towards sleep has in, in part been caused by this historical failure of science to explain why we need, why we need sleep. So sleep remained one of the last great biological mysteries. Think about it. We've, we figured out genetics. We figured out molecular biology. We figured out high-powered digital technology. But we haven't been able to unlock the stubborn vault of sleep. Right? All these great scientific mysteries, but we still haven't figured out why we need the sleep. Until more recently. Addressing the question of why we sleep from an evolutionary perspective, only compounds this mystery. No matter which vantage point you take, sleep would appear to be the most foolish of biological phenomena. Just think evolutionarily speaking. When you are asleep, you cannot gather food. You can't socialize. You can't find a mate and reproduce. You can't nurture or protect your offspring. Worse still, sleep leaves you vulnerable to uh, predation. Sleep is surely one of the most puzzling of all human behaviors. Why do we sleep is the wrong question we need. To, we are asking. It implies that there's only a single function of sleep, one holy grail reason that we slept, and we went to search for that reason. And theories, you know, throughout the history of, of mankind really range from logical, like, oh, we're just kind of a, this is a time to conserve energy, 
to peculiar, like an opportunity for your eyeballs to get oxygenated or to cycle an cycle analytical, like um, we need sleep because this is a non-conscious state in which we fulfill these rep repressed kind of wishes. But the matter of fact is that we sleep for a litany of functions, plural, not just one, an abundant constellation of nighttime benefits that service both our brains and our bodies. So within the brain, sleep enriches a diversity of functions, including our ability to learn, memorize, and make logical decisions and choices. Benevolently servicing our psychological health, sleep recalibrates our emotional brain circuits, allowing us to navigate next day social and psychological challenges with cool-headed composure. Downstairs in the body, sleep restocks the armory of our immune system, helps fight malignancy, prevents infections, wards off all manner of sickness, and sleep also reforms the body's metabolic state by fine-tuning the balance of insulin and circulating glucose. Sleep further regulates our appetite, helps control body weight through healthy food selection. Plentiful sleep maintains flourishing microbiome within your gut, from which we know so much of our nutritional health begins. Adequate sleep is intimately tied to the fitness of our cardiovascular system, lowers blood pressure while keeping our hearts in fine condition. Now, hopefully by the end of this podcast, I can convince you that sleep is one of the most important things you can do for your health and to increase your lifespan and health span. So a balanced diet and exercise are of vital importance, of course, but we now see that sleep is this pre preeminent force in the health trinity. So we have our exercise, we have our diet, and then we have sleep. The physical and mental impairments caused by one night of bad sleep dwarf those caused by an equivalent absence of food or exercise. It is difficult to imagine any other state, naturally or medically manipulated, that affords a more powerful redressing of physical and mental health at every level of analysis. Emerging from this research, Renaissance is an unequivocal message. So this is the theme of the book right here, this next sentence. Sleep is the single most effective thing we can do to reset our brain and body each day, mother's nature's best effort, yet at contra death. So that is the theme of this book. That is what Dr. Matthew Walker is trying to push in this book and in his studies. So to move forward, I'll be discussing, you know, chapter two, which is caffeine, jet lag, and melatonin. So there are two main factors that determine when you want to sleep and when you want to be awake. The first is this 24-hour clock, this circadian clock. The clock creates a cycling day-night rhythm that makes you feel tired or alert at regular times of night and day, respectively. The second factor is a chemical substance that builds up in your brain and creates this quote-unquote sleep pressure. Now, I did, I did an entire podcast on Dr. Sachin Panda's book, The Circadian Code, if you want to go check that out. Uh, I won't be going into circadian rhythm and all that in great detail in this book because I covered it pretty extensively in another book but I will focus on the sleep pressure and melatonin and all that so to move forward uh, let me find here so to move forward I'm going to start with melatonin we've all heard of melatonin 
We know what it is, but just to quickly recap and to be thorough, I will explain to you listeners what melatonin is, how it works. In your hypothalamus, there is an area called your suprachiasmatic nucleus. So there's different nuclei in your brain, and they have different functions uh, and release different hormones. The one that specifically uh, controls the release of melatonin is the suprachiasmatic nucleus. The suprachiasmatic nucleus communicates its repeating signal of night and day to your brain and body using a circulating messenger called melatonin. So the suprachiasmatic nucleus will communicate with the pineal gland, which is where melatonin comes from. So melatonin will be released from the pineal gland into the bloodstream and produce its effects. What happens when melatonin gets released? Melatonin acts like a powerful bullhorn, shouting out a clear message to the brain and to the body. It's dark, it's dark. At this moment, we have been served with nighttime and with it a biological command for the timing of sleep onset. Now, in this way, melatonin helps regulate the timing of when we sleep when sleep occurs by systematically signaling darkness throughout the organism. So the lights go down, it gets dark outside, we start taking that information in with our circadian biology, and we start releasing melatonin into our body. Now, this is just a side tangent, but melatonin is important for not only sleep-wake cycles, but it has a lot of other effects that are kind of recently being discovered. So melatonin can actually act as an antioxidant as well. And it does this via promoting uh, expression of these antioxidant enzymes like superoxide dismutase, glutathione peroxidase, and catalase. Melatonin also has this anti-tumor properties by enhancing apoptosis and decreasing angiogenesis. So just remember that melatonin is a lot more than just the sleep hormone. It has systemic effects. And I tried looking into the mechanism for the sleep-wake specifically, and the consensus isn't completely clear, but we know that melatonin has different receptors. Melatonin binds to receptors called the MT1 and MT2, so melatonin 1, melatonin 2 receptors. These are both G-protein-coupled receptors, meaning that they work via uh, cyclic AMP mo uh, modulation and provide some sort of downstream effect. Now, I don't have time to go into signaling cascades, but just remember that melatonin receptors and melatonin works through G-protein-coupled receptors. And also remember that melatonin receptors are located everywhere in your body, so not just your central nervous system. Melatonin receptors are in your retina, ovaries, testes, liver, kidney, skin, and even in your immune system. So when melatonin binds to its receptor and inhibits adenylate cyclase and ultimately decreases cyclic AMP, this causes a rippling effect of non-activation downstream. Now, that's all very complicated stuff, but I just wanted you to remember that melatonin is not just in your brain. It's actually, we actually have receptors all throughout our body, including our skin. So that's melatonin in a nutshell. I could spend hours talking about that, but I wanted to move forward and talk about sleep pressure. So the 24-hour circadian rhythm is the first of the two factors determining wake and sleep. The second is the sleep pressure. At this very moment, a chemical co compound called adenosine is building up in your brain. So adenosine is this organic compound, and the longer you are awake, the more adenosine will accumulate. One consequence of increasing adenosine in the brain 
is an increasing desire to sleep. This is known again as sleep pressure. And it is the second force that will determine when you feel sleepy and thus should go to bed. Using a clever dual action effect, high concentrations of adenosine simultaneously turn down the volume of wake-promoting regions in your brain and turn up the dial on sleep-inducing regions. Now you can, however, artificially mute the sleep signal of adenosine. And the way this is done is via caffeine. So caffeine, most people think, okay, it's raising cortisol, it's keeping us awake, but the actual mechanism is by inhibiting adenosine from biting to its receptor. So it's sort of acting as this competitive antagonist. Caffeine blocks and effectively inactivates the receptors, acting as this masking agent. Now caffeine has an average half-life of about, of about five to seven hours. So let's say that you have a cup of coffee after your evening dinner around, let's say, 7.30 p.m. This means that by about 1.30 a.m., 50% of that caffeine may still be active and circulating throughout your body and your, in your brain tissue. In other words, by 1.30 a.m., you're only halfway to completing the job of cleansing your brain of the caffeine you drank after dinner. Now, there's nothing benign about this 50% uh, mark either. Half a shot of caffeine is still plenty powerful. So the point of this segment is to remind you that you shouldn't drink coffee past, let's say, like 1 or 2 p.m. because it's going to affect your sleep-wake cycle and it's going to keep you up. So if anything, drink decaffeinated or you know non-caffeinated co- coffee if you enjoy it that much uh, to prevent you from uh, you know staying up and being all jittery towards the towards the evening before sleep. Now what happens to all the accumulated adenosine once you do fall asleep? During sleep, there is a mass evacuation that gets underway as the brain has a chance to degrade and remove the day's adenosine. Across the night, sleep lifts the heavy weights off sleep pressure, lightening the adenosine load. So that that's what's going on when you sleep, the adenosine just kind of um you know, disappears, it goes away, and it'll start accumulating again once you wake up the following day. Um, so to move forward, I'll be talking about uh, defining and generating sleep. Now, I'm going to be talking about a quick scenario here. So let's say perhaps you walked into a living room late at one night while chatting with a friend, and you saw a family member, let's call her Jessica, lying still on the couch not making a peep, body recumbent, and head lolling to one side. Immediately, you turn to your friend and say, shh, Jessica is sleeping. But how did you know that? It took a split second of time, yet there was little doubt in your mind that about Jessica's state. Why instead do you not think Jessica was in a coma or dead? Well, there's definitely ways we can define sleep, so let's go through that. Over time, We have all become incredibly good at recognizing a number of signals that suggest that that some individual is asleep. First, sleep organisms adopt this stereotypical position. So in land animals, this is often horizontal, as, as was Jessica's position on the couch. Second, and related, sleep organisms have lowered muscle tone. So the actual tone of our muscles is lower than if we're awake. Thirdly, sleep, sleeping individuals show no overt displays of communication or responsiveness. Finally, 
defining features of sleep isn't that it's is that it's easily reversible, which is obviously different from someone in a coma, someone who is under anesthesia, uh, hibernation, or death. And one last thing to remember is that sleep adheres to a reliable time pattern across 24 hours, instructed by, again, this circadian rhythm and also this adenosine. Humans are diurnal, so we have a preference for being awake throughout the day and sleeping at night. Now, let me ask you a different question. How do you yourself know that you have slept? So we know the sleeping positions and stuff of other people, but how do you know that you yourself have slept? First is the loss of external awareness. You stop perceiving the world around you. You are no longer conscious of all that surrounds you, at least not um, explicitly. In actual fact, your ears are still hearing your eyes, are, though closed, are still capable of seeing. And this is similarly true for other sensory organs as well. Like your nose, your taste, your touch. You don't lose those. You just, you can't perceive it. And the signals are, all these signals still flood again into the center of your brain. But they end up getting blocked in the area called the thalamus. So the thalamus is this area that controls like a relay station. Uh, a lot of your sensories run through there. And that's where signals are actually blocked. So you can't, you can't smell things, you can't see things, you can't hear things when you're sleeping. And it's because of that blockage in the thalamus. Now, the second feature that instructs your own self-determined judgment of sleep is a sense of time distortion. distortion. So consider the last time you fell asleep on an airplane. When you woke up, you probably checked the clock to see how long you've been asleep. Why? Because your explicit tracking of time was lost while you slept. It is this feeling of time cavity that, in waking retrospect, makes you confident that you've been asleep. So we've all had that instance where we've been on a plane, and you wake up and you have no idea, you know, what, what time it is, how long you've slept, etc. Because it's still dark and you don't really know what's going on. So that's that's really the second feature of knowing whether or not you've slept or not. So though we have all determined that someone is asleep or that we've been asleep ourselves, there is actually a gold standard scientific verification of sleep, which requires the recording of signals using electrodes arising from three different um, regions in your brain, uh, you know, brainwave activity, eye movement, and also muscle activity. Collectively, these signals are grouped together under the blanket term polysomnography, or PSG. And we take a polysomnography and we look at our eye movement, we look at brain activity, and we look at muscle tone. It was using this collection of measures that arguably the most important discovery in all of sleep research was made in 1952 at the University of Chicago by Eugene Azerzinski and also this other man by the name of Nathaniel Kleitman. So Azerinsky had been carefully documenting the eye movement. Okay, this is super interesting. So Azerzinski, again, this researcher, documented the eye movement patterns of human infants during the day and the nighttime. And what he noticed was that there were periods of sleep when the eyes would rapidly dart from side to side underneath their eyelids. Furthermore, these sleep phases were almost always accompanied by remarkable active brain waves, almost identical to those observed from a brain that is wide awake. 
And as Rosinski realized the profound discovery they had made. So humans don't just sleep, but really cycle through two completely different types of sleep. They named these sleep stages based on their defining ocular features, non-rapid eye movement or NREM and rapid eye movement or REM sleep. So we're getting into the sleep cycle. This man, Azarzynski, looked at baby's eyes when they were sleeping and he saw they kind of darted back and forth and he, he, he coined the term like rapid eye movement, REM sleep. And N-sleep, NREM sleep um, received further dissection in the years after being subdivided into four different separate stages. So we could just call it NREM stage one through stage four. And it kind of increases in the depth. So stage three and four, for example, are therefore the deepest stages of NREM sleep you experience with depth being defined as increasing difficulty to, to wake an individual out of these NREM stages compared to like, let's say, stages one and two. So just to quickly go into the sleep cycle. So the cerebral war between, you know, NREM, there's this kind of war between NREM and NREM. The cerebral war between the two is won and lost every 90 minutes, ruled first by NREM sleep, followed by a comeback of REM sleep. No sooner has the battle finished than it starts anew, replaying every 90 minutes. So again, NREM sleep kind of dominates the first half of your of your, you know, sleep time, and then REM kind of makes a comeback later. So in the first half of the night, the vast majority of your 90-minute cycles are consumed by deep NREM sleep and very little REM sleep. But as we transition into the second half of the night, this seesaw balance really shifts with most of the time dominated by REM sleep with little, if any, deep NREM sleep. Now, why did Mother Nature design this strange, complex equation of unfolding sleep stages? Why do we cycle between NREM and REM sleep over and over? Why not obtain all the required NREM sleep first, followed by all the necessary REM sleep second, or vice versa? There isn't one conclusive theory, but one theory that Dr. Matthew Walker does have, and that he's offered is that the uneven back and forth interplay between NREM and REM is necessary to elegantly remodel and update our neural circuits at nighttime, and in doing so, manage the finite storage space within the brain. So really, there's this sweet spot, and as we will discover later in this uh, later podcast, a key function of deep NREM sleep, which again predominantly occurs early in the night, is to do the work of weeding out and removing unnecessary kind of neural connections. In contrast, the dreaming stages of REM sleep, which prevails later in the night, plays a role in strengthening those connections. In this way, sleep may elegantly manage and solve our memory storage crisis. With the general excavation force of NREM sleep dominating early, after which the etching hands of REM sleep blends, interconnects, and add details. So think about your life experience. Your life experience is ever-changing. You're demanding more like memory catalog and you kind of have this like finite ability in your brain. As a result, the brain always requires a new bout of sleep and its various stages 
each night so as to kind of auto-update our memory network based on the events of prior day. So this account is one reason, of many he suspects, explaining the cycling nature of NREM and REM and the imbalance of their distribution across the night. So that is his prevailing theory of why we have this NREM and REM battle. And, um, you know, it's, it's a totally good theory. We have lim- limited spaces in our brain for memory. So we have to use this NREM to kind of weed out any irrelevant information and then use the REM to have consolidation, you know, in our brains um, to remember like what we did more recently and more important information. Now, just to quickly finish off on one more question, are we the only creatures that experience these varied stages of sleep? Do any other animals have REM sleep? Do they dream? Um, so we're going to find that out in uh, part one continued, which I will do you know, in a little bit. Um, so in part one continued, I will answer those questions. I will also talk about four major differences in sleep from you know, one species to another. And I'll also explain how sleep changes across our lifespan. So I hope you enjoyed this introduction to why we sleep. Um, Again, I'm going into detail later in in later episodes about, you know, the health benefits of sleep and what happens when we don't sleep. This is just a broad introduction. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you listen to further episodes and uh, tune in next time. Thanks for listening.